Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. Today, we are very pleased and honored to have with us Dr. Ephraim Zuroff. Dr. Zuroff earned his PhD in history from the Hebrew University. Dr. Zuroff serves as the director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Israel and has dedicated his life to hunting down Nazi criminals and bringing them to justice. Dr. Zuroff has helped uncover the escape hundreds of Nazi war criminals, and has influenced countries to legislate laws enabling the prosecution of those Nazi war criminals. Just one example, Dr. Zurov played a key role in the exposure, arrest, extradition, and prosecution of Dinko Sakik, the former command, commandment, commander of the Ustazhe concentration camp, Novak. And today, we will be discussing Dr. Zurov's Our People, Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust, which chronicles his journey to mass murder sites in Lithuania, together with Lithuanian writer Ruta Vanagate. And it's a powerful book, uh, and I urge all our listeners and viewers to simply, as I did, go on to Amazon, click the button, free delivery, uh, and it's extremely and very worthwhile. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Zorov, for your time today. We appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Pleasure. Um, just by way of introduction, who is Ruta Vanagate, and how did you connect with her to write Our People? So first of all, to, let's. Uh, I have to correct you. Her name is Vanagaita. Okay. That's the way it's spelled. Uh, that's the way it's pronounced in Lithuanian. Okay. Rutavanagaita is a very, certainly was a very popular author in Lithuania who had written quite a few books about social issues in Lithuania. For example, uh, elderly care. She, she took care of her elderly parents uh, before they passed away. And she wrote a book about the, the um, problems facing the uh, health system in Lithuania and the challenges facing uh, children who want to, you know, uh, take care of their parents in the best way imaginable. That that book was very popular. Another book of hers was uh, a runaway bestseller. It sold 50,000 copies in a country of less than uh, two and a half million people, which was a book of advice to women at 50. Now, the problem was that, especially in the small towns, for many women, when they reach that age, life looks very bleak. In many cases, husbands have disappeared or they're they're suffering from alcoholism or or other, other, you know, problems. And um, the book was basically a book of advice how to recreate themselves and create a new life for them. And I have to tell you that uh, not once and not twice, I saw people when I was walking in, in Vilna, in Vilnius, uh, with Ruta, women would come up to her and hug her and kiss her and say, you saved my life. <laughs> so, and actually the only reason our book was actually published in Lithuanian was because of her great success as an author and the desire uh, of her publisher to keep her, you know, writing for them. Because um, when we went to speak to the uh, Almolotera publishing house and tell them that uh, we're writing this book uh, together about uh, 
the Holocaust, I mean, they said to Ruta, you know, you wrote such a uh, popular book about women. Why don't you write a book about men? So, so uh, Ruta said, well, listen, I think that's a good idea. I'll write a book about men. But first, you're going to publish the book that I'm writing now. Oh, Ruta, you're writing another book. How wonderful. What are you writing about? The Holocaust. Oy, vavoy. Terrible. <laughs> what do you, who do you think is going to read a book like that? She said, you want me to keep writing for you? You're going to publish this book. So what's interesting is that they made one condition, which was very, actually a very wise advice, which was not to say a word about the subject of the book until it came out. And that's why the government was totally unprepared for what happened. And uh, in a sense, we, uh, we were able to publish the book. It sold out immediately. The first printing of 2,000 copies sold out in less than 48 hours. Ultimately, sold 20,000 copies. Most read book in public libraries, three years running. And if the government had known, it's not clear if that book ever would have seen the light of day. Uh, how many mass murder sites did you visit together, very briefly, and which ones? Okay, first of all, there are 234 mass Holocaust graves in Lithuania. We visited 35 uh, sites of mass murder in Lithuania and five sites in Belarus because a Lithuanian auxiliary police unit, the 12th, the 12th Battalion, was sent on October 6, 1941 to Belarus to carry out the mass murder of Jewish communities in that country. And uh, they murdered at least 20,000 Jews in less than a year and a half. So we went to five of those sites and 35 in Lithuania. Okay. Um, as an example, um, the great Jewish community of Kovna, um, what happened to the Jews of Kovna during the war? Well, what happened to the Jews of Kovna was typical of the Jews, the Jewish communities in the large cities. In other words, in the Shtetlach, there were 220 Jewish communities in Lithuania prior to the Shoah. And most of the Jews in the small towns were already murdered during the first six months of the Nazi invasion. But there were several ghettos that were created by the Nazis, and those ghettos were in the large cities. So there was a ghetto in Vilna, a large ghetto in Vilna, a large ghetto in Kovna, uh, a smaller ghetto in Shaulai, or Shavel, as it's called in Yiddish, a ghetto in Panovich and, and a ghetto in Svensian. Elsewhere, the only Jews that were alive were Jews who were in hiding, many of whom, unfortunately, were caught by, by the Nazis and their helpers and murdered by them. Okay. And you had mentioned, of course, the city of Panovich and the, the famous yeshiva of Panovich. Um, what happened in Panovich? What happened in Panovich was what happened everywhere else. In other words, there were 7,000 Jews who were living in Panovich before the war. And Ruta's aunt's husband was actually the police chief in Panovich until the end of, of August, during which time a large percentage of those Jews were already murdered. Um, and uh, he actually resigned at the end of August, 1941. It's, it's not clear exactly why. I mean, I, I don't think it's because he had any sympathy for the Jews or anything of the sort. 
but he later ran away to America, uh, fleeing the communists for fear that he would be put on trial by the communists, which was a likely uh, scenario. But he died one year before the Office of Special Investigations of the U.S. Justice Department was created. And that office was created in order to deal with the cases of Nazis who had emigrated under false pretenses to the United States. And the irony of the story is that I worked for them uh, from 1980 to 1986 in Israel as the sole researcher, their sole researcher, and I helped uh, find many witnesses uh, for trials of Lithuanians. How extensive was the Lithuanian local collaboration with the Germans and Nazis during World War II? How, how did it play out? Different, different uh, ancillary police units, local population. Well, you had uh, you had a lot of both. The one of the amazing statistics uh, regarding the Shoah in Lithuania uh, was uh, discovered. At, by a very well-known uh, uh, German historian who is the leading expert on the Nazi occupation of Lithuania, a man named Christoph Dickmann. And he, he found out or he investigated, and the truth was that there were less than a 1,000 Germans in Lithuania during the Nazi in, uh, occupation. Now, the Shoah started in places like Lithuania. And it didn't start with Auschwitz. It started with the Einsatzgruppen, the special mobile killing units, who were sent to annihilate the enemies of the Reich, enemies of the Reich, in quotation marks, primarily Jews, but not only Jews, gypsies, Jehovah Witnesses, mentally ill, physically ill, handicapped, communists, etc. Now, the method that was used initially was shooting. So in other words, every single person had to be shot, had to be killed individually. It's not like dropping a canister of Cyclone B into a gas chamber in Auschwitz and you've murdered half an hour later, 200 Jews are dead. So the Einsatzgruppen numbered only several thousand men. There were some women also working there. Um, and they had to cover an area from Metall in Estonia in the north all the way down to Odessa. And in less than two years, they murdered a million and a half primarily Jews. So how could they do it? If there's less than a thousand Germans in Lithuania, and Lithuania had 220,000 Jews living under the Nazi occupation, how are they able to murder so many Jews? They were able to do it because that so, so many uh, Lithuanians who were zealous participants uh, in this mass murder operation, by the way, which was encouraged by the Lithuanian political leadership, which during the year of uh, Russian occupation, after maybe it's, it'd be, it would help to give a little historical background. Absolutely. Uh, Lithuania, which had once been a huge kingdom in the uh, 16th, 15th and 16th century, was for hundreds of years under Tsarist, part of the Tsarist Empire. In 1918, in the wake of World War One and the self-determination of nations, they were able to obtain independence. That independence lasted until June 1940, when Soviets invaded, occupied Lithuania. And a year later, in June 1941, 22nd of June 1941, 
the Nazis invaded and kicked out the Soviets. So, um, the as I, as I was saying, the um, the number of people who were involved in this operation was huge. And that's the only explanation for the high percentage of victims in Lithuania, which was 96.4% of the Jews, and 90% of whom were murdered by shooting near their homes by Nazis and Lithuanians, in some cases only by, only by Lithuanians. We know of certain places where not a single German was present. We know of certain places in Lithuania where the only Germans present were filming the murders, not, not, uh, you, not uh, killing the people themselves. As you went uh, around um, Lithuania and interviewed, met local residents, um, what was their reaction? As as I probably understood, what you were probably what you were doing were they open and honest about events? Were they afraid to speak? What was the general reaction? Okay. We were looking for anybody who appeared to be old enough to have lived through the war. Not a single person refused to be interviewed. They were all very open. And what's interesting is that, especially in the small communities, the Shtetlach, um, there are no Jews left. So in other words, every, we, we were sure that every single person we spoke to was not Jewish. Every single person was asked, who murdered the Jews in this place? And every single person responded by the Lithuanians carried out the murders. Everyone. It was amazing. It was shocking. And, and did you meet the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren who admitted my my grandfather, my great-grandfather was... No, we didn't interview them. We didn't okay. interview them. We only wanted to speak to authentic witnesses, people who themselves had seen what they could tell us about the war. And, and maybe, you know, I, I, can, I can tell you one, one story that, Absolutely. to my mind, is symbolic. In the town of Shventsioneli, which is uh, Novo Shventsian in Yiddish, it's a place not far from where my grandfather was born, um, I saw a, a woman, elderly woman, leaving a grocery store. And uh, since I don't speak Lithuanian, I, and I assume she didn't know English, uh, I asked Ruta to ask her what, what she knew, what she remembered. So she told us the following story. In 1941, when the Nazis invaded and the decrees started against the Jews, she was eight years old. And she had been friendly with a Jewish girl. Uh, and their family had two, two girls, one teenager or one you know, 14, 15-year-old and, and the eight-year-old daughter. And it was the same in her family. And when the decrees against the Jews began, the, there was a very intense discussion in her family about the possibility of perhaps saving her Jewish friend. So I asked her, I said, you, you must have been afraid of the Germans. She said, no, we, were not, we could have hidden my friend forever. We were afraid of our neighbors. And she started crying why, why, why? I'm telling you, it was so heartbreaking. It was like probably the first time she could tell that story to someone who sympathized with her. 
and would not look askance at the fact that they wanted to save the Jewish girl. How, how did Soviet control of Lithuania after the war impact on local Lithuanian attitudes towards the Holocaust and what happened? Okay, so we, you, there were two things that are very important to mention. One is that the Soviets uh, put on trial hundreds of Lithuanian Nazi collaborators. Uh, if, there's a, if there's one good thing that you can say about the Soviet Union, and there's not many more than that, perhaps, uh, that is that they took the issue of collaboration with the Nazis very seriously, and uh, the number of people who were convicted is huge, huge, thousands, and, 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 and tens of thousands throughout the Soviet bloc. Now, that's that's one thing. The other point is that the Soviets actually invented their own narrative, produced their own narrative of World War II. You will never hear, you, you would never hear the Soviets speak about World War II. That was not what they called it. They called it the Great Patriotic War. And that was, in a sense, the pinnacle of Soviet achievement, the greatest moment of the Soviet Union. And uh, there's no denying that the role played by the Red Army was very important. But having said that, the Soviets consistently refused to admit that the Jews had been singled out by the Nazis for to be murdered. All of them. Everyone was a potential victim. And the other problem was that the assistance given by the locals in these countries that later became Soviet republics, that's Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, and Ukraine, those are the five uh, places that became uh, Soviet republics after World War II, um, it ran counter to the myth that the Soviets had created about the brotherhood of the peoples of the Soviet Union. In other words, the Soviet Union had over 100 nationalities. So what ties together a Moldavan with a Georgian, with an Azeri, with a, a Kyrgyz, someone from Kyrgyz, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, uh, Leningrad, etc.? They're brothers in socialism, supposedly. But if that's the case, how can a Ukrainian socialist or communist murder a Jewish communist in Babia? How can a Lithuanian communist murder a Lithuanian Jew in Ponar? Etc. You understand my point. Yes. Okay. Um, did the Lithuanians uh, respond initially to the book? Um, you said it was extremely popular, but what was the response? Those that, wow. That, wow. That... It was a very mixed response. Okay. Um, there were many people who uh, read the book, as I as I mentioned. Um, but what's interesting is that apparently it was only people who had lived through the generation that lived through the war or the very young people who had grown up in the European Union. The people from, let's say, 25, 30 to 60, or a little bit older maybe, didn't want to touch the book. They didn't, they didn't want to be, uh, you know, have to sort of... Uh, uh, changed their narrative that they had accepted, which was that the Holocaust was a terrible tragedy. The Germans came and murdered our Jews. But it, that, that was only, there was a kernel of truth to that, because without the Germans, without the Nazis, 
there wouldn't have been a Holocaust. But uh, that's certainly far from the truth in terms of what it actually took place in Lithuania. And how did the Lithuanian government deal with the book, the findings? That's ooh, ooh, ooh. The head of national security went on television, national television, and said, this book is a threat to Lithuanian national security. Now, when this happened, this has happened 2016 in Lithuania. So we all laughed, and we said, this is, this is ridiculous. Okay? But now, in the wake of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Putin's speech that he wants to denazify Ukraine, who knows? I mean, it, maybe it's not as, as weird as it, as it sounds. I mean, the U.S. Embassy called up the government in Lithuania and told the people to get a life. You know, what do you, what do you think? This, is, this book is going to get, uh, you know, inspire Russia to invade Lithuania? It seems ludicrous. And it doesn't seem so ludicrous, but, you're saying. Now, in retrospect, it may not have been so ludicrous. But but the other point is that, um, for example, the person who shepherded Lithuania to independence, uh, Vitaltas Landsbergis, who was the first head of state also, he basically wrote to Ruta, now that you have betrayed the country, why don't you condemn yourself? Which basically means go commit suicide. And uh, Ruta was facing uh, tremendous animosity. And later on, a year and a half later, when she questioned whether or not um, um, Adolfus Romanowskis, who was one of the people who fought against the Soviets after the war, should be a hero of Lithuania, and she knew some very questionable facts about his, not, not questionable facts, but, but stories which reflected very poorly about Romanowskis. And she said, well, maybe it's not such a good idea. Her publisher, Alma Latera, severed relations with her, took all copies of her, all her books, even though only one book had to deal with the Shoah. 27,000 copies were taken out of the bookstores. And initially they said they're going to turn them into toilet paper. But then they said that, uh, but she went to court to get, uh, to get the books back. And, but she was stuck with them because no one wanted to sell them for her. No, no bookstore was willing to take them uh, and sell them. Was there a counter reaction to that, to the government's policy, perhaps among in the academic world? And, and no, no, this is part speech, of the, the issue of free speech, liberal. No one, listen to me, no one, we could not find any serious allies in Lithuania to fight for the, the correct narrative of the Holocaust. You know, there might be some intellectuals who, who cooperated, let's say, and, and were interviewed, um, but they're not speaking out. They're not taking on the government. This thing is from the top to the bottom. In other words, no, the, the government has changed quite a few times in Lithuania since independence, like in any normal democracy. But we never found anybody, and I've been going to Lithuania since independence, uh, and not even in the media. It's very often the, the media in certain countries was on our side and pushing the government to prosecute Nazi war criminals. We couldn't find anybody who was willing to do that. It was like almost like like uh, uh, dooming themselves to to you know losing their career. Were any Lithuanian war criminals 
brought to trial, not by the Soviet Union, post? So three were put on trial, but the Lithuanians made sure that not a single one would serve a day in jail. Even though two of them were were uh, convicted, they, they passed three laws in their parliament that are absolutely absurd and that have never been passed in any parliament of any country in the world. So the first was that you can investigate a genocide suspect even if they're not medically fit. Then you can indict a genocide suspect even if they're not medically fit. Then you can have a, a trial with a hookup to a hospital bed. Now, none of them were required, obligated to even show up at the trials. I'll never forget, one, once I was at the trial of Alexandros Lelakis, who was the head of the Lithuanian security police in, in Vilna, whose men guarded the Vilna ghetto, preventing Lithuanians who might want to help, and there were some righteous Gentiles in Lithuania, uh, and preventing people from escaping from the ghetto, and they were the ones who took the Jews to Ponar, this mass murder site of the Jews of Vilna. Had a hundred men under his under his control. So he one time showed up at the at the trial, at his own trial. He was never forced to appear, actually. So instead of reading him the charge sheet, instead of reading him the indictment, they asked him, Mr. Lelakis, what do you have to say for yourself? He said, I did it all for my country. He had a heart attack on the spot. Another example? I mean, that's, that's just... Impressive. No, so an even worse example was the case of Algamantis Dailida, who worked for Lelakis. He, he was under Lelakis. He was sentenced to five years in prison. And the judges decided we're not implementing it because his wife is sick. His wife, not him. And the relationship now between the state of Israel, you you, you live obviously in, in, in Jerusalem and Yerushalayim, the state of Israel and Lithuania, is this a issue of contention, something that the Israeli government has to deal with, or are we beyond that? To be perfectly honest, I have never been so disappointed with the state of Israel as I am about this issue. Bibi Netanyahu went to Lithuania in 2018 when he was prime minister, and he praised the Lithuanians for the manner in which they are commemorating the Shoah, which is the biggest lie. It's a total lie. And I put out a press release in which I said, I compared that to praising the Ku Klux Klan for improving race relations in the United States. No, I'm very frustrated by this. I have to tell you, Bibi's, Bibi's policy was to try and dr drive a wedge between the Western European members of the European Union who are obsessed with the Palestinians and the Eastern European members who couldn't care less about the Palestinians. And since EU policy is, is decided unanimously, he thought that he could, he could thwart uh, initiatives against Israel. That was one side of it. And also th that... The, that these countries have a vote in the in the EU, they have a vote in the UN, and um, he he refrained from criticizing them, and he made sure that no one else criticized them. I mean, except for me, I think. And uh, I, I tell you, I am so frustrated by this thing. You have no idea. Is is, is, so, is it pot? Is it possible to have a relationship when the narrative, their narrative, is so counter? 
to the next. Listen, you can have a nat- you can have a relationship, but you know these countries are not the United States or Germany, okay? Who are major allies of Israel and whose support is credit is very very important. These are countries that are emptying out. Lithuania got independence in 1990. There were 3.5 million Lithuanians. Today, there's 2.3. They're leaving by in droves. Latvia, it's less than 2 million people already. It's the same problem. The, the more the, a, a country was involved, or a country's nationals were involved in the actual killing of Jews, the worse the narrative is. It's a, it's a very simple equation. There were three three models of collaboration with the Nazis because the, the Nazis tried to enlist help in every country they occupied in every country that was allied with them. So you have the Western European model, Belgium, Holland, France, Italy, etc., where the, um, the people who helped the Nazis, so they passed laws against the Jews. There was, there was discriminatory legislation. The Jews' lives was made exceedingly uh, harrowing and terrible. And at a certain point, they arrested the Jews and brought them to a train station or to a harbor and sent them somewhere else to be murdered by someone else. Then you have, but they, those people, let's say the NSB in Holland, the Dutch Mm -hmm. Nazi collaborators, they weren't the ones who murdered the Jews of Holland. The Jews of Holland who were murdered were murdered in Auschwitz and murdered in Sobibor. The French Vichy police were not the ones who murdered the Jews. They, the French Jews were murdered primarily in Auschwitz. So, although there was one group of French Jews sent to be murdered in Lithuania, ironically. But, um, and the same is true in Belgium, in uh, Czech Republic, for example, uh, in, other, in, in other countries. So, then you have the Central European model, a country like Croatia, which had 40,000 Jews. 20,000 Jews were murdered by the Ustasha, that's the Croatian fascists, the special concentration camp set up to murder Serbs, Jews, and Roma, and gypsies. And another 10,000 were sent to Auschwitz later on. So it's a mixed model. Hungary, 437,000 Jews deported to Auschwitz, 80% of whom were murdered on arrival. But the Hungarians murdered Jews in in communist Podolsk, Jews who had been... um, arrested because they didn't have Hungarian uh, citizenship and were living in Hungary. Mm-hmm. In Novi Sad, they murdered thousands of Jews, Serbs, and Roma in, in and around the city of Novi Sad in January of 42. And then when the Nazis installed the um, Salashi government, the Arrow Cross, that's the Hungarian fascists, there was open season on Jews, and, th- and thousands of Jews were murdered in Budapest. So that's a mixed model. But in countries like Lithuania... Almost all the Jews were killed by the Lithuanians. Latvian, in Latvia, the same. In Estonia, Ukraine is a different sister, a different story because many Jews were sent to camps, and the same with Belarus. But many were murdered by Ukrainians or Belarusians. Even with this narrative of what happened during the war, and let's say the Russian narrative, the Luth- Lithuanian narrative, has there been, in your opinion, any shift? in anti-Semitic attitudes in countries like Lithuania, for the better? Listen, these countries are not suffering from um, anti-Semitism to the extent that it exists in Eastern Europe, in, in Western Europe, excuse me, because they're missing one of the major components of, of the problem, which is the Muslim immigrants. 
So they refuse to admit these people, and for good reason, I think. Uh, and therefore, they don't have the problem of Muslim anti-Semitism. But they have the other anti-Semitism, the traditional anti-Semitism, and the right wing and the extreme right wing anti-Semitism. But uh, it's, not, it's not in alarming proportions, okay. I have to say. In other words, they, you, they don't need guards in front of the synagogue in Lithuania uh, or in Latvia. To the best of my, I know in Latvia there, there is a guard. There are guards before the cinema, uh, synagogue. Um, and uh, there's no question that the level of violence, uh, certainly about violence, not to mention the level of anti-Semitic vandalizations and things like that, is less than what you see in Western Europe or even in the United States these days. You, you had mentioned that response um, to the book um, was 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 high among the young young generation. Where do we go from here with the young generation of Lithuanians? What what else can be done? What do you see that needs to be done? Okay, so right now. What our, our book, you could say, was the first uh, the first tool or weapon in the arsenal. In the meantime, a couple of other things have happened. One is that the granddaughter of Jonas Nareka, who was a notorious uh, collaborator with the Nazis and was in charge, of, he was the liaison between the Nazis and the Lithuanians in dealing with the Jews, and he was responsible in the area of northwestern Lithuania which includes, for example, Tel Shai, that's the Lithuanian name of Tels, Jagar, Shaulai, etc. Many thousands of Jews were murdered under his ages, so to speak. So his granddaughter uh, was supposed to write his biography. He was murdered by the Soviets. He was executed by the Soviets in 1947. His wife, uh, his wife uh, and... Uh, her daughter escaped to the United States in 1944. They fled Lithuania and uh, arrived in the United States, settled in Marquette Park in Chicago, which is the biggest center of Lithuanians outside of Vilnius, outside of Lithuania. And she grew up, and, and this, and eventually a daughter was born to the daughter, and she grew up uh, being told that her grandfather, Jonas Nareka, was a great hero, a great Lithuanian hero. Uh, she visited Lithuania. They reburied him in, in a special ceremony. He was given the highest honor and the highest military ranks, etc. And the more research that she did, all of a sudden she discovered that, that her grandfather was a Nazi war criminal. So she wrote a book called My Grandfather, the Nazi War Criminal, which shocked the Lithuanians. In the meantime, it's only, it's, it's in English. The Lithuanian version is supposed to come out soon. But um, and in addition, there have been two movies just in the last half year, which relate to the participation in one movie of Lithuanians and the other movie Lithuanians and Latvians in the mass murder of Jews. So there's one movie called Baltic Truth. That's uh, by um, that's by uh, Eugene Levine. Another movie by Michael Kretschmer from England is Jacuz. I accuse. And now, uh, Michael Kretschmer's movie is basically about a fellow by the name of Grant Gochin, who has tried numerous times to sue Lithuania uh, to force them to cancel the honors bestowed upon Jonas Nareka, because he lost 100 relatives 
in the area of northwestern Lithuania. The other movie is um, by, as I said, Eugene Levine. It's called Bought the Truths. And um, it tells the same story, basically, but uh, including Latvia. Any um, issue of reparations from Lithuania? No, that, that issue uh, was initially solved by a, um, a contribution of the Lithuanian government to the Jewish community and something called the Goodwill Foundation, which was used to finance uh, educational initiatives uh, and and other uh, projects that uh, were launched in the Jewish community. Now, with the Prime Minister Shimonaita about to visit Washington, all of a sudden Lithuanians came forward with a proposal of 37 million euros for over 12 years for uh, the restitution of private property. I mean, this is so so transparent. I mean, it's so obvious why it was happening, right? When it's happening, it means that the bill hasn't passed. Mm-hmm. So she's going to Washington before the bill can possibly pass, but we'll see. And and there's a lot of um, uh, criticism about who is doing what with the money in, in Lithuania itself, within the Jewish community, because the uh, leadership is quite controversial. And um, what what is the, what is the Jewish community in Lithuania today? Yeah. Supposedly five thousand Jews. Uh-huh. Okay. They're not. They're not only in Vilna. There's a small community in, in Kovna and Kaunas. Small, smaller community in Panovich, a hundred Jews or so in Klaipeda. It's old Memel. It also has some sort of community. But I mean, mm-hmm. it's a community that, that doesn't have any great future. That's obvious. Are you able to travel still to Lithuania? Believe it or not, yes. But I haven't okay. been there for many years. And um, for about five years already, I think. Uh, last time I was there was in 2016 when we launched the book, I think. Or maybe after that as well. After that as well. Um, but um, we're trying to do what we're trying to do. Uh, the fact that the government is not, our government is not fighting this is, is very disturbing, I have to say. And um, the problem is that the, there's not enough Lithuanian Jews in Israel to create a lobby that can really affect government policy. In, in Poland, it's much more different. You have far more, far more people who are Polish origin. And they're a... Uh, they're a group that's worthy of courting uh, in electoral terms. Right. What, what's what's next, Dr. Zorop, on your plate after such a long career, illustrious career of accomplishments? What? Well, so first of all, yeah. the uh, the trials in Germany are continuing. Germany very dramatically changed its prosecution policy twelve years ago, fourteen years ago, when until until then. If you wanted to prosecute a Nazi war criminal in in the Federal Republic, you had to prove that that person had committed a specific crime against a specific victim and had been motivated by racial hatred. It's impossible to prove, right? So believe it or not, based on what happened to the plotters of 9-11 who were living in Hamburg, the Germans prosecuted them for accessory to murder. And they were successful. They were convicted and they're being they're punished now. They, and I was, I, I'm assuming they're still in jail. 
Um, and uh, two lawyers who worked, there's a national agency to investigate Nazi cases and to vet Nazi cases uh, to make sure that they have uh, validity and they can be pursued. Uh, they went to their boss and said, why don't you do the same thing about death camp guards? Anyone who was there was part of the, ma the machinery, the framework of annihilation. So the first case that was brought to justice under this new policy was none other than Ivan Demyanyuk, who was stuck in America because the American government got a deportation order for him, either to Poland, Ukraine, or Germany. Now, in Ukraine, he's a hero, he's a martyr. They claim that he was framed by the Jews, you know? <laughs> and in Poland, they would have loved to prosecute him because he was a Ukrainian, not a Pope. But um, there was no evidence. None of the survivors remembered Demyanyuk. So that left Germany, and Germany finally asked for his extradition. He was put on trial in Munich uh, in June, I think, 2019, then 2009. And in May of 2011, he was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. Um, but in Germany, while you, if you submit a, uh, an appeal, you don't go to jail until the appeal has been heard. So he died awaiting his appeal. But he had been in jail for quite some time. In many, in many instances in the United States, in Israel, he served seven and a half years. But um, at least he didn't, he didn't die an innocent person. So that's, one, that's right. one thing that we're doing. Is, uh, we're helping uh, Thomas Walter, who was the person who helped change the German prosecution policy and uh, is very super dedicated to, to the efforts to bring Nazis to justice. I had a long talk with him today, actually, um, helping him find survivors for a trial now in Robinsbrook. So I hope any of you who are listening to this podcast and know survivors in Robinsbrook to please contact me in Yerushalayim at 050-721-4156 um, or anyone who lost a first-degree relative in a camp, in this case, Robin's book, um, who can, those people, and we're talking about people who lost a parent, right. a spouse, a brother, a sibling, or a child, uh, to they can join the prosecution as co-plaintiffs. They can make a statement in court. They can ask questions. And um, this, I know from our past experience in, 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 in previous trials, and there have been eight trials already of these people, that it, it provides incredible closure for the, the families of the victims. Who's so, the defendant in this case? Who's the defendant in 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 this? in this case? The name has not been released yet. Okay. Say Croatian Volksdeutsche. In other words, that's a person of German origin who settled in Eastern Europe. He, he was born in Croatia. Um, and besides that, we continue the fight against um, Holocaust distortion, primarily in post-communist Eastern Europe. So I have to say, quite simply. This book, here it is. <laughs> I already showed it to you before. Right. Uh, actually, the the faces that are on this cover are actually seen much better in the Lithuanian 
Lithuanian copy. Okay. So, and you'll also notice that uh-huh. you might be able to notice that on this cover, only one name of an author appears, which is Ruta Varagaita. No it. sign of Ephraim Zuroff. Okay. Here that any book by Ephraim Zuroff will be boycotted. Well, we, we urge we urge all our viewers and listeners, this has been fascinating um, to actually go online and um, you don't have to purchase the Lithuanian version. You can purchase the English version and it really is an important and uh, critical book. No, it's, all, it's also available on Kindle. By the way, it's already Kindle. come out besides uh, Lithuanian and English. It's come out in Hebrew, in Polish, oh, in Russian, in Swedish, in Japanese, and it's supposed to come out in Ukrainian, and I don't know if that'll happen, but it'll also come out very soon in Dutch. And if anyone knows a good German publisher, send me the information. If any of you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Absolutely. at capital E, capital Z, U-R-O-F-F, or follow me on Facebook, or follow the Wiesenthal Center, which has a wonderful website at wiesenthal.com. And uh, we'll continue. We're not giving up. We can't give up. We are out there fighting for the victims, and uh, they need someone to to represent them, to fight for them, to make sure that their memory will never be forgotten and will never be desecrated. Dr. Zero, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. You're welcome.